0: comprised of two creations there's a lot of pairings that make up th- thematically speaking motif speaking uh, make up the whole of the scriptures the storyline of the scriptures and, and one of those pairings is that there's two creations uh, there's a creation narrative at the beginning which we're looking at now a physical one where god creates everything physical and also, I guess, invisible, too, in a way, things we can't see. But uh, all the physical matter in the universe with his words. But then there's a second creation as well. After sin comes into the world, God sets out to redeem it and restore it. And he works in a newly creative kind of way through his son, Jesus Christ. And so uh, we, we see a lot of creation language then associated with Jesus and with the cross and with the empty tomb. And a lot of the ways the New Testament authors write after the cross about um, the gospel and so forth are you uh, employ creation Type, uh, type language. They're related. They speak to each other. And so proper interpretation of either one of them has to allow the other one to, to inform it. And so one way we saw this take place last week, even just in the first verse, we kind of just touched on the first verse last week where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. One way we saw this whole principle take place was to see how God created everything out of nothing, the Bible says. We call that ex nihilo. The Latin there is ex nihilo. So God created out of nothing With no pre-existing matter. It's a really important orthodox Christian doctrine to to uphold. In the same way then, the connection we made with the second creation uh, in the New Testament is to say that in the same way when God creates a second time through his son or when he saves us from our sins, he saves out of nothing. Which is to say apart from us or not based on any pre-existing goodness in us whatsoever. So we're saved by grace. Not by works. And it's interesting, it's more than interesting, it's fascinating and worshipful that the very first verse of the Bible looks ahead uh, to this idea saved by grace, saved by grace, the grace of God, not by our works. Very freeing. So today then, we're going to continue in chapter one, uh, reading more of the account of how God made the earth and the heavens in the beginning, as it says in six days. A uh, little disclaimer here, we're going to read the days a little bit out of order. So the next three weeks or so, we're going to look at these uh, six uh, to seven days. We're going to look at uh, days one, two, and four today, because they're similar. We'll talk about that in a minute. Next week, versus or days uh, three and five, and um, then the two weeks from now, we'll look at the creation of humankind, and then the Sabbath day, <clears throat> the seventh day, three weeks from now. So uh, order in some ways is important here. I'll talk about that today, <clears throat> the order of how God creates, but in some ways it's not important. And so I'll talk about that a little bit as well. But well, thematically, we're, we're connecting these things uh, for, for certain reasons here. So uh, Genesis 1, 1 to 10. Uh, today's uh, sermon is called, Let there be light and darkness, day and night, earth and sea, sun and moon. Essentially, let there be contrast. <clears throat> so we'll start in verse 1 again, even though I read it last week, for to set, up, set the stage for today. And then all the way through verse 19, skipping uh, day 3. <clears throat> in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. All right, a couple of quick asides here before we get into the meat of this uh, section of the creation account is we read this uh, portion of the scriptures, uh, this chapter of the Bible specifically, and see that God makes everything in six days, and there's a seventh day where he rests, but he makes everything in six days. You might wonder, as some do, is that a, a literal six-day period or a figurative one? And then relatedly, is, is the earth older or younger, relatively speaking, and, and how this might uh, coincide with geological or biological perspectives on the age of the earth, and how life has evolved, or not evolved, as it were, uh, here since time and space and matter first came into existence. So a couple of things just asides here, I'm, I'm just going to try to ease tension, not answer questions. <laughs> it's so easy to do that, right? Just uh, just uh, ease some tension and give some perspective on this, because I know a lot of you care a lot about this, some of you don't, don't care at all. Just bear with me here for a second. But for those of you who do and you're interested, uh, first of all, I think it's important to remember that no one knows what really happened. And we don't have a detailed account of this uh, other than what's revealed to us here in in Genesis 1. So from a biblical perspective, this is all we have. And Genesis 2 speaks kind of a complementary angle about the creation of humankind. We'll get to that uh, several weeks from now. But there can be a degree of arrogance for a Christian or atheist alike into thinking that we can know exactly how God created the heavens and the earth which includes its precise timeline. Just got to be careful with that. Uh, so that's the first thing. Second, uh, nothing here. So with all that in mind, nothing here, as, as you, maybe you just saw, and we'll read more of this next week and the following week too. So a lot of you, I know, have read that, but if you haven't, uh, a lot of the same pattern uh, is, is employed. God speaks and it becomes something and God calls it good and, and there's some theology kind of woven in there as well. And so uh, th- it's important to see here, nothing that we just read necessarily conflicts with scientific data. And I'm speaking here for our overseers as a church. When we say this, you guys might disagree, and that's fine. Uh, but and from our perspective, nothing here necessarily conflicts with, with science. Um, now, there are holes in science, just like there are holes at times in our interpretational takes on the Bible. So, it's, in other words, it's possible then to believe in evolutionary biology, even on a macro scale, uh, species-to-species evolution, and that God guided that process within the framework of what Genesis 1 is saying, we call this theistic evolution, that he starts the clock and kind of lets it run and intervenes at times uh, to uh, kind of kickstart things or to add things to the the, uh, creative framework and and build slowly uh, over time. It's possible to do that. From what we just read, it's possible to hold that perspective. And on the flip side, it's possible to believe that the earth is relatively young, uh, no matter what the geological data says, that, that God created, in other words, with the appearance of age and that macro-species-to-species evolution is not at all a part of our origin story, and rather that God created the world by its kinds. That, that phrase, by its kinds, is used. We'll see that next week. We didn't read that this week. But created animals and, uh, and so forth by its kinds in a relatively short period of time. So both, both perspectives are possible. We, we actually don't have a formal perspective on this as, as a church, which means we don't really care a ton about it. Even our overseers see things a little bit differently. Uh, here and there in the minutiae we care more about other things that genesis 1 is saying we'll talk about a little bit later uh, today if i had to lay my cards down though on on the matter i'd say that uh, all of this seems to fit a little bit more neatly in the within the framework of the earth being younger and god creating more quickly whether they're 24-hour periods literally or not rather than through evolutionary processes but the latter could have been that still is possible It's, it's a legitimate perspective it's not uh, completely unorthodox or heretical uh, to hold that perspective to be, uh, to, be, to be very clear on on that. Um, there's a lot that I don't know about this and, and you don't know, so we have to approach this humbly. And we would love to talk to you guys more about this. A lot of you guys have already raised this with us before knowing this series was coming and, and have had questions. We'd love to talk to you guys more about it if you would like. But overall, just try to ease the tension between how, you know, sometimes we pit the Bible and science against each other. It's just, it's just not necessary to do From what it says, and and more than that, there's something much deeper going on here as well. So that when we study Genesis one, we're not thinking about science maybe primarily. Maybe some of us are a little bit more than others because we're scientists and we're interested in that, and that's great. Nothing wrong with that, but it's not primarily uh, what God is trying to speak to us. Like like I said last week, there are things we can say about the book, and there are things that the book says to us. And that's the, the latter thing is what we really want to hone in on. What is God saying here on a kind of a, a macro, meta-narrative like scale as we kind of weave in the rest of the scriptures here and bring Christ into this? Uh, what is he saying to us theologically? That's the most important question. Secondary, tertiary questions about uh, geological data, scientific data uh, like this, how that relates, or other kind of interesting historical, contextual perspectives on the book are also helpful. We'll talk about some of those things as a series uh, goes on are, are great. And actually, my wife's a, a geologist, and so we, we had a lot of greats um, when we were dating questions, or talks uh, about age of earth stuff and how that all works out, and it was a lot of, lot of fun to do. So we, uh, we love, that's great. So talk about that, debate respectfully, <laughs> love each other across those divides, and, but, but major on the majors here, major on the uh, theological historical data here, the, the, the biblical perspective on what we learn about God, what we learn about Christ, what we learn about the gospel. And, and so actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call this here. Oh, actually, I forgot to mention this, too. That's actually a pretty important thing. <laughs> Thank goodness for a slide. So here's a couple things. What we must believe, then, about Genesis 1. So uh, this is what we would say, aside from all I said before, what we do need to go all in on uh, as Christians. We have to believe it is history. We have to believe God created out of nothing. It's, it's uh, heresy to say otherwise. We talked about the importance of that last week and a little bit by recap this morning. Relatedly, God created by his words, not with matter, but by speaking. We have to believe he created in a very ordered way, and he brought order to chaos. We must believe humans are the pinnacle of his creation, that there is a bit of hierarchy in creation, that'll come out today here as well too, and it it all points us in various ways to Jesus Christ. But as you see, those are all very big, kind of general basic things. And for some of you, maybe that, that's not the case. But you know, from our perspective, in a lot of ways, I think as you sort of widen out here, uh, those are basic, big picture theological things that, that the rest of the scriptures talk about. And so for, you know, most Christians are going to kind of just instinctually say yes to all of those anyway. Uh, but Genesis 1 undergirds, being the beginning of this book, undergirds these and talks about them for, uh, for the first time. All right, so the more important piece then, with all that said, the more important side of this is, and, and I was going to say this earlier, but I'll say it now, uh, frame it this way. What does the, these aspects of the first creation tell us about Jesus or the second creation? Remember, it's theology here, not just history. So that's the question we'll use to kind of uh, frame the rest of our time. And I uh, have two things here today. The first is that God makes light. Uh, first that he and then he calls it good and he when when he creates light he speaks it into the darkness so god creates light and he pushes back the darkness uh, with it verse two gives uh, some backdrop to this it's the setup for it in verse two it says the spirit hovers over the waters uh, showing us how in control god is this is a very uh, in control god's bringing order to chaos type picture here god creates the earth it's formless it's void it's chaotic. There's stormy seas. There's just water, just water, actually. And he hovers over them and he creates uh, order and beauty and uh, life out of it. So, which in its own way points us ahead to Christ, in that it reminds us of the one who one day would walk on the stormy seas, rebuke them, and still them, and whose spirit in the New Testament is instrumental in stilling the stormy, chaotic, sinful souls of our hearts. That's a major motif of the scriptures, is God bringing order to chaos, whether he does it physically or whether he does it spiritually in the New Testament. And so when Christ interacts with stormy seas, it's new creation kind of language. And on the cross, he does that spiritually speaking as well. So then in verse 3, get to this point here, in verse 3, that's the setup. In verse 3, as a way to begin to create this order and bring order from chaos, light is created. So there's just water and darkness, things are void, it's, it's without form, the earth, but God speaks into it and he brings light for the first time into what was created. It's important here to see that light is created first before the sun. So order here actually is really important to see right off the bat that we see light come into the world before the sun, which tells us something, right? It tells us that there is another kind of light in the universe, there, there must be. God creates light before the sun. It's this theological hint that there's something that gives light to the universe, to the earth, primarily uh, more than the sun, which comes later. And that's namely God and Christ. First John 1 John 1.5 says God is light. Not he is kind of bright. He is light. God is light and in them there is no darkness at all. This is also actually uh, what what we see at the very beginning of the New Testament, too, which I looked at this verse last week, but I'll add a verse here, too. The beginning of the New Testament gospel accounts talks about Jesus being light specifically uh, as well and uses very Genesis 1-ish kind of language, too, to indicate that God is creating again. He's doing a new thing. He's reversing the curse. He's pushing back the darkness of sin with his own own light. And so John 1, 1 to 5 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word is Christ here, speaking of Jesus. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So you can see a lot of comparisons here. Just put them side by side with John 1, next to Genesis 1-1, and you see a lot of similarities, right? Both start with in the beginning, God, God is creating, he's doing a new thing in the very beginning, of course, but then in John 1, through Christ, he's recreating again. But then you see this, this uh, injection of light. The first thing, when in the beginning is mentioned, light is created. And in, in the New Testament, light comes a second time. Uh, Christ, though, is the light this time. And so God is, God is creating again, this time, through his Son. But the, the amazing news is not just that, that, that these things line up like this, that the Bible is kind of comprised in this beautiful... Manner and that Jesus is called the light; that God actually is light. That's amazing. But the good news for people with darkened hearts like us is that the light shines into the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome the light. And we see that physically as well, right? When when light shines into darkness, darkness does not push back against it. The light pushes at that darkness. But how much more with Christ? This is saying the darkness doesn't win. It doesn't push back against the light. It is not overcome. By darkness, but rather the light is victorious. And so, for people that, that have darkened hearts like us, and this is why the scriptures speak this way, it's not just a random uh, word or metaphor, it's creation language to say, like Romans twenty one one twenty one says, Our foolish hearts were darkened. Darkened. We're the darkness. But the gospel says, the gospel speaks into that. The gospel means good news. The good news of Jesus Christ speaks into that in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. And look at the way this is written. This is in the New Testament. Look at how he starts. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. He's quoting Genesis 1, 3. The the, the God who said that in the very beginning, who created that way, created a second time. This is what he did. The same God who did that in the same way he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Isn't that amazing? In the same way, he's, this is how Paul's interpreting Genesis 1. This is why God created this way in the first place, so that later he might create in a similar way, but a better way. He creates through light two times. The second way is better. It pertains to dark, dark-hearted people, sinners, rebels, people who sit and wallow in the valley of the shadow of death all their lives. God cares. He cares. Like in the beginning, he cared to make light when there was darkness. That wasn't good. So he made light and called it good. It's not good for God that you are separated from him. He loves you. He cares about you. He wanted to move towards you and speak light into into your darkened heart life. And he did that through the death and resurrection of his son. And we know that here. It's a little bit cryptic here, but we know that it's not just God speaking light and giving a vague sense of enlightenment about Christian themes. It's specifically the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So when God illuminates our hearts to understand that he became a human being to die for us, and when we, when we believe in that, when we cast our care upon that, when we say all is not in relation to that, when we believe and trust and, and go all in on that gospel, uh, that, that's what makes us newly created. That's what makes our hearts have light. Or maybe better yet, what um, our hearts face that light in, in Christ Jesus. So God has this pattern then in the Bible of looking into darkness and, and speaking that light. And in both cases though, it's, it's his choice, right? It's his choice to create. Done by him, not by us. This is a big theme from last week too if you were here. Uh, the, the darkness here in Genesis 1 is not becoming less dark on its own, right? God is not sitting back and looking at the darkness and saying, it's, it's, it's working, the darkness is kind of becoming light on its own, right? He has to do something to make the darkness not there anymore. He separates the two, light and, and darkness. He speaks into it. He essentially saves the earth in that way in Genesis 1. And, and so does he now in this New Testament, newly, new creation era, So does he work through his son in in this way. It's it's his creative decrees that save, not not us. Uh, Darkness never leaves by itself. We we need the light. Uh, We we don't, and the the, the bad news is we don't have any light within us. The Bible never says you have light in you, ever. It, It only says it after the fact, and we believe in Jesus. We can walk in the light, we can follow the light, We can have enlightened hearts after he saves us and speaks into us. The darkness in that sense, I guess you could say, flees. But just on a human level with sin, we're we're darkened in, in death. We're darkened in our sin. We're darkened in our rebellion. And we need God to shine in our hearts. So Christians then have this distinct perspective on what it means to be saved. Religion, Other religions would say something like, tap into your inner light and you will be saved tap into your inner light and you'll be enlightened. Christianity says, believe in Jesus, the light of God, and you'll be saved. They're, they're complete 180. Christianity says you have no light within you whatsoever. So you have to look elsewhere, not yourself, to be saved. God, the light, the one who looks at darkness and says, don't be there anymore. That's, that's the one we have to look to, and that's what he did through his son's death and resurrection. Uh, the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. Uh, it's specifically there that we find that redemption. So God's creation then it, of light amidst the darkness, that, that, that contrast or clash helps tell this gospel story. And it leads me to kind of widen out here. So I wanted to start there because it's the first thing you see in Genesis 1. But then as we widen out and keep reading in Genesis, we see some similar patterns that take shape, that help to kind of bolster what I just said, but also give a, a Kind of unique perspective too on some matters, which we'll get to. The second thing then is contrast is a part of the creation narratives. Contrast is a part of the biblical story. You might have noticed that uh, in well, even just the parts I read today, though there's uh, more to be said. But the parts we read today, that God is creating contrasting elements uh, already, like light and darkness, earth and seas, day and night sun and moon. And it says, in a couple of these cases, he separates them. In verse 4, in light's case, it actually says he calls light good, but he never calls darkness good. You might have just thought, maybe from before, because you were taught this, or you just kind of assumed that everything is good in the beginning. God calls everything good. It's actually not the case. He never calls darkness good. So light is good, but darkness is not. And he separates it. In the sun's case, he calls it the greater light versus the moon, which is the lesser light. And the seas, though good, are still not ideal for us uh, land dwellers. So uh, dry land is the better thing. In fact, this is a theme embodied all throughout the scriptures, how dry land is associated with salvation. Uh, Think Noah and the flood, for example, or Israel passing through the the Red Sea as it split through Moses' staff, and it says there in that story, they walked through on dry land. Same word used here in uh, Genesis 1. So the dry land is the better thing than than the seas. Contrast, again, contrast, contrast, contrast. So not all things in the beginning are made equal. A lot of things are, but not not all things. Uh, Not in every sense of the word anyway. Now remember, this is before sin came into the world. Right? So we can't say things are lesser now because of sin. It doesn't say that in the beginning sun and moon were equal, equally glorious, then sin came, now the moon is lame. Right? It says in the beginning, the sun was better than the moon. The sun had greater glory than the moon. Contrast. There's a bit of hierarchy here employed already, even before sin comes into the world. Darkness as well, not not called uh, good. So God created the moon to have lesser glory than the sun, and that's a good thing. So why is this important? There's so many things we could say about this. I'm going to touch on a couple of things today, but there's a, there's a few bunny trails I wanted to take, but just couldn't for the sake of time. So just understand, maybe even some of you guys will think this as I'm talking, like that, that could be applied here and there as well, in these different parts of the Bible, and you're probably right. But here's a couple of things. Why is this important? One, maybe the biggest thing, this tells us right away, or at least gives us a hint, that God plans to tell a story. A story with protagonists and antagonists, plot lines, lesser things that give way to greater things, lesser things that are overcome for the sake of the better things. Uh, In regards to the sun and moon, it says that they should be for signs and seasons, meaning they each have respective parts of the day to rule and of the story to tell. So God loves this. He loves contrast. There's two testaments in the Bible to kind of get at this uh, as well, and, and we do too. I, th- I think human beings, made in God's image, uh, we have this propensity. Some of us more than others, maybe, or in different ways, but all of us, to some in some fashion, uh, like contrast. Even if we don't realize we are liking it in in the moment, or let like, like a person, think about it this way: like a person, much more appreciate the dawn after a dark night. Why do we like spring so much when the days get longer? Why do we talk talk about that in Minnesota? Right, days are getting longer. I just thought that like five times this morning when the sun's shining at a different angle, into my window, and I have to close the curtain. I'm like, this is a good thing, not a bad thing. Uh, but why do, we, why do we like that? Or we might more appreciate it, right, after an extremely dark season uh, or a night. Or, or why do we appreciate health after we've been sick, appreciate health more after we've been sick for, for a while? Uh, so like we have all that, so in a sense does God. Uh, God appreciates, likes that contrast, so he creates with that. And and so there are, are, are lesser things in creation that point to greater realities, or you could say, the contrast stories themselves help to help us to appreciate the greater of of the two things. We see this uh, principle come come alive again and afresh as we tie back in Genesis one, but at the end of the Bible. In Revelation 21, so Revelation is the last book of the Bible when it talks about the future, the new heavens and new earth that God's going to make, uh, it, it talks there about how there will be no more seas, or oceans, nights, or darkness. Revelation 21, 1 and following, says, This is John the Apostle getting a vision from God about the future when Christ, when Christ comes back. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. That's the first thing. No more seas. No more oceans. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. So no more moon. And its lamp is the Lamb. The lamp is Christ. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And then lastly, here is the final thing. And there will be no night there. So maybe kind of a tough draw for people who are like oceans and evenings, but it's just, the way, it's just the way it is. And we don't know exactly how that's going to work in, in the new earth, but the more important thing is here is the theological progression, right? The Bible begins with darkness, nights, and oceans contrast, and it ends without those things. So we know that God's telling a story, right? If, if everything was on equal footing in the beginning and then sin came, God would restore everything to the same place. But he doesn't. Genesis 1 is telling us he's going to, Genesis 1 is not meant to be the end. He knows sin's going to come into the world somehow. He knows he's going to have a plan. He's he's aiming towards Revelation 21 through the lens of Christ the whole time. God's building a story to its climax. Genesis 1 is not that climax. It was never intended to be. But rather to set the stage for it. Or rather, think about this way, to be the moon to the sun of it. So the Old Testament's like the moon. The New Testament or Christ is like the sun. Uh, it, it, the Old Testament reflects the glory of the coming b- better body of light, uh, but it's not it at the same time. And so the Old Testament or Genesis 1 is the moon, but the cross and the empty tomb and Christ himself is the sun of the storyline. It's the better thing that's that's coming, and so it points to it. And so... Later in the biblical storyline then, just to be clear here, I should have been clear a little bit earlier, but what these, maybe I was, what, what this is saying is it becomes clear a little bit later in the story is that nights and darkness and sea metaphors are metaphors for evil and sin in the scriptures and light and day and dry land pictures uh, in the Bible, especially Old Testament, but also new, are metaphors for Jesus and salvation and and closeness to God. So already God is bringing things into the world that he will one day want to destroy. It's fascinating. Maybe tricky to understand. Probably impossible to fully understand as to why, but but he clearly is, right? Clearly he's doing that. This is before sin comes into the world, so we can't blame it on that. God has intent to tell a story, to be the sun to the moon, to be the dry land to the ocean, to be the better thing to the lesser thing, to, to be the savior of all mankind. And so these gives us, the way he's creating, the contrasting way gives us hints to that. And so if we back up here again and look at this from the night perspective, we could, we could spend three sermons on each of these, but why does night exist? Ask it from that angle. Why does night exist then? The answer is for Jesus' sake, to contrast with him, to give way to him, to show off the light of his salvific sunrise all the more. It, it exists, Night does, to reflect sin and death, to show that God had actually intent for it, namely to clash with it, to enter into it himself as the light and to overcome it. Romans 5 says, when sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So God got his contrast thing on all the more when sin came into the world, though it wasn't his fault, it was that's on us. At the same time, he's sovereign over it. He knew it was going to happen. And when, when sin clashed, with, with light and goodness, light, it couldn't be overcome by the light. God's grace was more pronounced, and it won on the cross. So God's ultimate, then kind of recreative decree, when the, the ultimate way God speaks light into the darkness event of history, is Christ on the cross. That's when darkness kind of reigned. It was the hour of darkness. Remember that? When Jesus said that? This is the hour of darkness, the hour of the enemy, the hour of the devil. It's also why it got dark when Jesus was on the cross from noon to three. The sun just went out. Because the light of the world was hanging amidst darkness for you and me. He was bearing your darkness, your dark heart. He's recreating the world. God sees a dark world in sin, and the way he says, let there be light, is by sending Jesus into the world to hang there for you and me. Let there be light again. Let there be salvation. Let there be newness Let there be a way out of this treacherousness. Let there be a way out of this rebellion. Let there be a way back back for my people to me. This is how he's making it happen, you guys. This is let there be light amidst the darkness. This is separating the light from the darkness. This is the light absorbing the darkness for you and me, dying, but then coming up out of that tomb three days. As that, That one song says that we sing here, when he burst forth in glorious day. There's a reason why he rose at dawn and not dusk. He rose in the morning when the sun rises because he's the savior of the day. See, all these metaphors point ahead, all these symbols, all these themes, all these motifs, all these passages serve the purpose of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so Genesis 1, then, going back to Genesis, helps to tell this story Ahead of time, the, the sun, the day, and the light are greater than the moon, the night, and the darkness. In other, in other words, this is, where it, this is where it really starts to apply to people. If you're here and you're burdened by your sin or you're lonely, you feel distant from God, uh, wh- whatever your thorn is this morning, what, what this is saying is God is always stronger than the night, always. Has the sun never come up one day? Is it just, did, it, did it fail to come up one day? Like, never. In the same way, God is stronger than your sin. The night, the darkness, the moon that constitutes your inner rebellion and sin against God. I don't care what you've done or thought. The light is stronger. So don't, don't be confronted with the cross and face the cross and think, Ah, yeah, but I thought this or I did this or I'm out of reach. Don't think I feel distant from God so he can't come to, to get me or... Or or treat him as though he's some distant judge. He he didn't go through this because he hates you. He loves you. He wanted to speak light into you. Otherwise, he wouldn't have. And me. Why would he have done this? See, what this screams to us, what Genesis 1 whispers, and what the cross shouts, is that God intends to save you. He wants to. He loves you. He made you physically and he wants to remake you spiritually though you fell to sin through his son. And that, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the gospel. That's the glorious news here, the freeing news for people who have darkened hearts. If you have a darkened heart today, then that's really good news for you. If you don't think you have a darkened heart, it's not very good news, right? It's not a gospel for you. But if, you, if you're a really, really, really big time sinner, if you've hurt people, if you've hurt yourself, you've made some very bad decisions that have caused just a catastrophe in your life, uh, if you've striven uh, for the furthest away from God that you ever thought possible, then Genesis 1 is good news from you. The light always overcomes the darkness. and it's, it's true in creation and it's true in your life as well. So the call here through Genesis 1 is to believe the gospel that Jesus died for your sins, that it's a stronger light than the, dark, the darkest recesses of your heart. I don't care what you're thinking, what you've done, or what you will do in the future, his love is bigger, and his strength is, uh, is stronger than your weakness. So a couple of things here then uh, in, in closing. Um, sort of additional things, but some recap here too. Um, and I think Spence is going to preach next week. I think he was going to talk about this too a little bit or something like this, and I probably will in a couple of weeks as well, because it applies to all of Genesis 1 and 2. Um, <clears throat> But the first thing is that the story of the gospel is all around us. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. What Psalm 19.1 is saying then is not just that the earth is beautiful, though it is, that it can somehow point us to the the character of God, though it can. It's saying that, that all of creation tells us the story of Christ. Because what is the essence of the glory of God but Christ in him crucified? Is there something more glorious that God has done in the world besides Jesus? The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Remember that 2 Corinthians 4, 6 passage. The knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ gets more specific in the New Testament. So all creation declares Christ being the ultimate Glory. In other words, uh, you and I, being in this creation, being part of God's creation, we're, we are we are wired uh, to, in general, love the day more than the night for a reason, or at least to appreciate sunrises, or for guys v-cause have been in a very dark cave where they turn off the lights and you can't see anything. I've been on what's that one in uh, up there in the Iron Range, uh, Tower of Sudan? Is that what it's called, or Sudan? Is that the right thing? Doesn't sound right. Is that right? Okay. Well, they they, they take you down there. It's like whatever, a mile down, and they turn on the lights, you literally can't see. You almost start to hallucinate, like, I can see things, but you really can't, you know. They turn on a light, and you're just drawn to it. Like, why, did, why? Why is that the case, right? Like, why not? Why not darkness? If God flipped the coin in the beginning. Maybe that would be the case, but he didn't, because he knew he was the light. He actually was light. God is light, and so the story he's telling then in the world uh, is one of himself through creation. Not just the lens of the scriptures, though this is the primary way that we need to hear from God. A secondary, think about it this way. This is the sun, but the moon, which also has glory, but it's lesser, but still very important to understand, is that creation can tell us about God. And not just generally, specifically about the Christ. It can tell us about the light. When we appreciate a sunrise, that feeling you get, that's kind of like the gospel. Or when you've been at sea for a long time, some of you have, and you, and you love the feel of dry land, um, that moment you feel the dry land, that's kind of like the gospel in that moment, that feeling you get, how salvific it feels, how good it feels to be there. That, that's how good it should feel and more to get back to God, or it does if you already experienced that, right? It's kind, of like, it's kind of like that. The sun being more glorious than the moon, I mean, but it's reflecting at the same time. All these things tell us a story, about about christ why we get seasonal affective disorder in the winter you know it's like we're made for the sun the day and the light just like we're made for christ and so the stories that we kind of you know observe and live out underneath the sun or the moon in different ways um all serve the purpose of jesus christ all of creation is for him nothing was made john one says without it being made through jesus christ and his purposes all creation happened through jesus and so we can see him in it and his gospel and be led to this book and to church where we get it more explicitly, um, but just have it to complement the son of what we get through this book. All right, secondly is follow the light from John eight twelve. It says, and Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So like I said last week, uh, about a different verse. Following the light does not mean be a good person. He's not saying here, tap into your inner light. He's saying follow him, right? Who's the light here? Is the light some kind of an ideology? No, he's the light. He's saying follow me. What we need is Jesus not to be good. Though goodness comes from following him, what we need is Christ. We need deliverance from our wickedness but also our godless morality that replaces him. So he says, follow me. Follow the light and you won't be in, in darkness. So what, what, what he's saying here is be a child of God because Christ is the dry land and the sun and the, and the day and the, and the light. Um, so, so when Christ says or when God says, let there be light, it, it, it means Jesus is coming to destroy our sin. Follow that. This is how the scriptures connect these. And he has and he will and, and he loves us. And, and so it's this final call here and there's, there's a plethora. If you guys actually want to do this this week, I'd encourage you to do it, but if you have a means of, of doing this, I mean, just Google is a great way to do it, but other tools. Just search for how many times light comes up throughout the Bible, but start in the New Testament. Link it with Genesis 1 and say, look at how many times it references Christ and gospel truth. The, the new way God is creating and the way he did it by doing it all on his own accord uh, is reflective of how we are now saved uh, in, in him. And so it's a call to follow that. Be more about Jesus than about a sense of religious morality is, uh, is the call here. Follow the light, follow Christ, follow what he does for you. And you will not walk in darkness anymore. I'll end with uh, a Luke 1:77 reading here. Kind of mid-sentence here, picking up, but it says, to give knowledge of salvation to his people, speaking about the coming of Christ and of the world, and John the Baptist who would precede him, To give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being light, for separating light from darkness in the beginning and separating light from darkness. In the end, in the beginning and ending of the gospel, you separate the darkness of our hearts uh, from the light of your presence and, and you bring us to yourself. You take our sin away. You take the nights of our soul away. You take the stormy seas of our soul away. You die for us. Sin is that big. Rebellion's that big. Uh, so thank you for becoming in love like us. Uh, to hang as the light of the world on the darkest cross ever, ever devised by humankind, literally and figuratively. Thank you for speaking light into the world through your Son and then, and then consequently into our lives as well. Uh, thank you for not leaving us uh, to wallow in, in the, the pit of hell, in the pits of the darkest things of our life, but coming down to our level and empathizing with us and saving us, God. Help us, the the big thing here, the only, really, Genesis 1 has no imperatives. We're not even there yet. (laughs) We're not even created. This is about you doing something in the world. It's not about us. It's not about us before you. It's about you before us. Help us. Help us, please, God, to get over ourselves. And to not put ourselves so much in the story, whereas you don't. This is a story about you and how awesome you are and how saving you are and how impossible it is for us to save ourselves. God, thank you for loving us and dying for our sins. That's what Genesis 1 is about. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.